Well, for my wife and I's five-year anniversary, we took a trip to Italy. And as we were uh, planning this trip, all of a sudden, a few friends of ours got wind of this trip. And the next thing we knew, we had three other couples who are dear friends who were now accompanying us on our five-year anniversary trip to Italy. And in our uh, 17 years of marriage, it is still one of our all-time favorite vacations that we have ever been, that we have been on together. Now, one of our stops in Italy was in Florence, and one of the days we were in Florence, we uh, decided to rent a passenger van that would uh, take us through kind of the hillside of Tuscany, that we would you know, go see some of the smaller cities um, around the region, stop at a few vineyards along the way. Well, one of our stops was uh, the city of Siena. Now, Siena is a small, beautiful city um, in Italy, surrounded by these massive walls. And one of the things that Siena is popular for, or known for, is this race called the Palio. It's a horse race. And its origins uh, go all the way back to the 14th century, and that's, uh, how it's been practiced lately has gone back to 1633. Now, the Palio brings out uh, uh, seven or 10 of the 17 boroughs of Siena get to submit a horse. So Siena's broken up into 17 boroughs. I'm not sure how they decide, but each Palio, 10 horses, are submitted representing each borough. And it's a huge ordeal in the city. So there's this thousands of people who come out who flood the streets of Siena for this horse race. And each borough has its own flag, its colors, people are in costume, there's like a, uh, there's instruments marching down the streets of Siena. The place is absolutely packed. Well, as luck would have it, we had the only taxi driver in all of Italy who had no idea that this event was going on. It had only been practiced for about 450 years. So we're driving into Siena, and as we're coming up the street, all of a sudden we, we get to the top of the street and there is nowhere to go. It is just people everywhere. But instead of deciding to look behind him as there's no other cars and just gently go in reverse to get out, our taxi driver decides that he's going to turn into the parade. And so here we are in a 15-passenger van, no other cars on the street, in the middle of the polio, of people parading towards the polio in Siena. Uh, we were greeted with many uh, rolling eyes, evil death looks, people banging on the side of the van, kind of giving us a shoulder shrug, like, what are you doing? And here we are, eight Americans in the back of this van, slowly shrinking down into our seats until our driver is able to get to the next cross section or cross street and we're able to take a turn and get out of there. But we were clearly somewhere we were not supposed to be. We were trespassing on for, what, for the city what was sacred ground. We were outsiders who did not belong and we were not worthy to be there, especially in our 15 passenger van. And we felt it every minute of it. And in our psalm today, the question is asked and answered of who is worthy to be in God's presence? Who can be with God? And our psalm this morning is broken up into three distinct sections. First, we see who is the Lord. And then in the next section, we see the requirements to be in his presence. 
And then lastly, we'll see who is worthy to be in his presence. So in verse 1, we, we're introduced to who is the Lord. And David very purposely uses the name that God gave to Moses of the Lord, Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. Implicit in his name is I am and all other gods are not. And so anytime we see capital L-O-R-D in the scripture, the author is using this name, the name given to Moses, the Lord, Yahweh. This is the God who delivers, the God who rescues his people. And then next, we see that God, this Lord, he is the owner of the world. The earth belongs to him, and not just the earth, but all who dwell in it. Every people belong to God, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, social class. All people belong to God. Why? Because of what's next. Because all things are created by him. And all people are created in his image. So what gives God ownership? We see in verse 2 that he created all things. He brought all things into being. And we tend to feel a sense of ownership of the things that we create as well. Whether that be our own kids, we have a sense of ownership of our own kids. Uh, a startup that we began perhaps a project we're doing in the backyard, a thesis or dissertation, or when you're a kid, a Lego creation that you create. Right? We feel a sense of ownership of the things that we have created. And the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, for he is the one who founded it. He has complete ownership of it. But then next we learn something of the nature of this Lord. We learn that he is holy that where his presence is, is a holy place. So David asked the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And the holiness of the Lord has two very distinct aspects. First is his utter uniqueness or his majesty. As Exodus 15 says, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. In Isaiah, he's said to be seated on high and exalted. And wherever his presence lands, that place becomes sacred ground, which of course is why Moses had to remove his sandals upon coming to the presence of the burning bush. The second aspect of God's holiness is his absolute purity or his moral goodness. He is untouched by evil. As Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Or James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil. God is perfect. He is morally good and pure. And God's own perfection is the standard for our own moral character. The moral character of the Old Testament flows from God's holiness. And Israel was told that Israel was told, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. They were to be like their God. And Jesus reaffirms this in Matthew 5. He says, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This was God's intent for humanity. And we see a picture of this in the Garden of Eden where God's Spirit fully dwelled and Adam and Eve had complete access to the presence of the holy God. 
until that point at which they sinned and they had to be removed from the garden and the garden was blocked from them as a mercy to them. But to be in any sort of elite company, there usually is some sort of standard or requirement. And this is especially true in the military. There's an elite group of special forces that doesn't get quite the press that the Navy SEALs do, but they are just as elite. They're called the Air Force Special Warfare Pararescue Team. And their motto is that others, so that others may live. And their job is essentially to, uh, to evacuate injured special warfare fighters from any environment, whether that be on a cliffside or in the Arctic. They are trained medical experts who can go into any wartime scenario and rescue people. Their unofficial motto is because even SEALs, Green Berets, and Recon Marines need to call 911. <laughs> and it takes over two years to complete the training to become what they, what they call a PJ. It takes over two years of some of the most intense training out there. And I don't believe that anyone would say that it is not necessary for someone to complete every single requirement to become a PJ. If someone was on the team who did not complete all the requirements, they would be not only a liability to themselves, but to the team as well. And there is no more elite company that we could be in than in the presence of the Lord Almighty, the God of all creation. And there are requirements to be in his presence. And these requirements are for our own good. So then what are the requirements we see in verses 4 and 5? The first one we see is he who has clean hands. Clean or innocent hands are concerned with our conduct towards others. The phrase most commonly has to do with not taking or shedding innocent blood. However, we would be mistaken if we saw this only as it relates to taking life. Clean hands has to do with all of our interactions towards others both friend and stranger. God's people were supposed to love, not only supposed to love one another, but the foreigner as well. They were to be a blessing to the nations in their actions and how they conducted themselves. And so clean hands focuses on our loving actions towards one another, that they are to be perfect. And then the next requirement we see is that they must have a pure heart. Purity of heart is our inner attitude toward God and one another. Jesus illuminates this for us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he said, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the same judgment. God is not only concerned with our outer actions, but the condition and attitude and motivations of our heart. Jesus in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Scott McKnight in his commentary says, The pure in heart see God as a person to be loved, so their priority is God, and this leads to loving others well. And Jesus gives his own commentary on this as well in Matthew 6, where we see over and over again that the pure in heart do things not for the praise and admiration of others, but for the pleasure of God. And if we want to be in God's presence, then we too must have clean hands 
and a pure heart. And then next we see that it's also one who does not lift his soul to what is false or what is empty or to an idol. And we are reminded here of the first command of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. Or in the positive, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Lifting up the soul means to rely or depend on something. So we lift, when we lift up our soul to something, it is what we are relying on, the thing that we depend on. And we lift up our souls to so many different things. Most often, these things are not necessarily bad, wrong, or sinful in of themselves, but they become idols, they become false when we use them to find meaning, find fulfillment, or take them out of the context in which God intended. And these are the things that we often look to when we're going through a hard or difficult time. Oftentimes, we depend or look to relationships, sex, wealth, education, job titles, the opinions and praises of others, shopping, food, and you can insert whatever it is for you. What are the false things that you lift up your soul to? And then lastly, we see that one who does not swear deceitfully. And here we hear an echo of the ninth commandment, that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The Lord is the God of all truth. Therefore, only those who witness to and speak truth can enter his presence. And when we lie and deceive, we become like the evil one, the devil who Jesus calls the father of all lies. And Jesus says that when the devil lies, he speaks his native tongue. And then when we come to verses 5 and 6, we see what happens to the person who is able to fulfill all of these requirements. It says that person will see blessing and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Right? We see that it is a righteousness that comes from God. And it says such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And here's where we have a problem. If we look back just a couple Psalms earlier in Psalm 14 or read earlier in Romans 3, we see that there is no one who does good. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. There's an important leadership principle called defining reality. Max Dupree, who's a great leader and businessman who uh, took his father's furniture company and grew it to be one of the most profitable Fortune 500 companies. He wrote a book uh, called The Leadership is Art. And he said, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality, right? Defining reality is explaining what actually is and not what is hoped for or what should be. And here up to this point in our psalm, reality has been defined. The Lord is the creator and owner of the earth and all the people in it. The Lord is holy. He is majestic. He has no equal. He is morally pure untouched by evil. And if we are to be in his presence, we must have clean hands and a pure heart. We are not to depend on false or empty things and to always speak truth. 
And if we are honest with ourselves, if we accurately define our own reality, then we know that we do not do these things perfectly. We don't meet the requirements. And our culture has a hard time defining reality. I believe the prevailing narrative among our culture is that people are good, their happiness is ultimate, and sometimes they do bad things. However, Romans 3 paints a very different picture for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin separates us from a holy God and leaves us spiritually dead. Or as Isaiah 64 says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So what are we to do? How are we to receive this righteousness that can only come from God? And here in our psalm, we have a jolting transition. Right? Whereas before in our text, God is pictured up on high, in his holy place, up on a hill. And this portion of our text, God is with his people. God is outside of his holy place. God is off of his hill. It is believed that verses 7 through 10 were a hymn of praise that were usually sung either when the Ark was returning, the Ark of the Covenant was returning from battle, or that was sung when David brought the Ark into Jerusalem for the first time in 2 Samuel 6. The Ark to the Israelites was considered uh, where God sat enthroned. It lived in the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple. It was also referred to commonly as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies of heaven. The ark represented God's presence among his people. And so whatever context this, we find this section of the psalm is, we see that it is an occasion for celebration. We see a welcoming of this king of glory. And what's, what's interesting is this is the only place in the Bible where this title is used. We see a welcoming of the king of glory. And then we see a description of who this king is. And we see that this king we are welcoming is not just a man. This king of glory is the Lord, who is strong, mighty in battle. This king of glory is the Lord of hosts, the commander-in-chief of the Lord's heavenly armies. And we see that the Lord has appointed his king the worthy one, the king of glory, who we know to be Jesus Christ, who did not receive his crown through conquering countries, but through laying down his life on a cross, who did not, just feet, who did not defeat flesh and blood, but the rulers and principalities of this world, our ultimate enemy. The Lord Jesus left his holy place. He left the hill of the Lord, took on flesh, and came to fight and conquer the battles that we fight every single day. Jesus was the one who fought Israel's battles, and he still fights for us today through the power of his Holy Spirit. Because as we've seen, we can never fulfill the righteous requirements to be in his presence, to ascend the hill of the Lord, but we don't have to because Jesus did. 
on our behalf. Jesus has defeated our ultimate enemy through the cross and his resurrection that we may dwell with him, or as Paul writes in Colossians, and you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Lord has won the ultimate battle for our body and soul. However, this doesn't mean that since he has won the battle that we have nothing left to do. Even though the Lord fought for Israel, they still had to go into battle. David still had to face Goliath, and we still have to battle the sinful desires in all of us. One day we will be made perfect, but that day is not yet. Or in 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so in this life, we continue to grow in holiness through the working of God's Holy Spirit. And we're reminded that back in verse 6 of our psalm, that this righteousness from God is applied to those who seek God, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And remember that Jacob is the one who wrestled with God, that he would not let go of God until God blessed him. And our first step in seeking the face of God is putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the King of glory. And if we have faith in Jesus, then we have been counted righteous. But we must continue to seek after God. And, we, and I'll admit, sometimes that feels like a wrestling match. Right? We have this tension inside of us. We have God's Spirit who makes His home in our hearts and leads us towards holiness. And yet we have our sinful nature that we are trying to overcome. Paul describes it this way in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Sanctification or growing in holiness is the Lord's work as we seek Him. Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Work out your sanctification. Grow in holiness, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God's work in us through the power of his Holy Spirit who comes and makes his home in us, in us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But growing in holiness is not just about abstaining from evil, but also pursuing good, having clean hands, and we can be so result-oriented so results-oriented that it can become easy for us to be discouraged when we don't see the fruits of our labors or even when we are, even when we are laboring for the Lord or we're not seeing the outcome that we want to see but we must take heart and remember that salvation is the Lord's work as Jesus said no one uh, can come to the father 
or no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And sometimes we can wonder if the good things we're doing are making any difference, but we must remember that it is ultimately the Lord's battle. And we are called to be faithful, to show up, to trust in him, have faith in Jesus, which is why Paul wrote in Galatians, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord, to stand in his holy place? It is the King of glory and those who have been made righteous. And righteousness has always been the standard. All the way back to Genesis chapter 15, the text says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in our Romans passage that was read, we heard that by now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We can only receive this righteousness by faith. And we can only do righteous works by faith. We can't earn it. But we need it. And we can only receive it through faith. Christ's righteousness declared upon us puts us in right standing with God. If you're here this morning and you've not put your faith in Jesus... I invite you to trust him. The scriptures say that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Open up the gates of your heart that the king of glory may come in. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have put their faith in Jesus, let us continue to seek his face together. To grow, in to grow in godliness, to not grow weary, but to pursue good, to spur one another on in love and good works through the working of God's Holy Spirit. Never let the good news that Jesus is Lord grow stale in your hearts, that the creator of the universe took on flesh and walked among us, that God came to his people to rescue them, to deliver them. This should always fill our hearts with awe and wonder. That we have access to the Holy One because of the work of Jesus Christ. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, that confession that Jesus is Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have complete access to God's holy hill because of the work of Jesus Christ. So therefore, let us draw near. And lastly, let us continue and to share and to preach this gospel until all the cities and countries of this world open their gates to welcome and worship the King of glory. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that you came. Thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to dwell with you, to be 
and the presence of our Holy Father. Lord, we thank you, God, that you continue to fight for us today, God. Lord, that you continue to grow us in holiness. Lord, it's our prayer that we would, that we would grow in holiness, God. Lord, that we would not grow weary in doing good. God, that we would continually seek your face together, become a greater reflection of you in this world. And Lord, may we continue to herald, to preach your gospel, God, that you are Lord. Lord, until all people, Lord, confess that you are Lord, or to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.